Well, let's go before the Lord in prayer and pray to Him to illuminate this text to us. Lord, we come before You now. This is Your Word. It's powerful. It's able to cut through all the way to the soul. So, Lord, we ask this morning that we would not be unwilling patients. The physician of the soul, the lover of our hearts, would have his way with us this morning and draw us closer to himself. Lord, we ask this morning that your word would come to us straight and pure. Would you use it for the edification of your people, for the conviction of sin, for the encouragement of the downhearted? Lord, we ask this in the powerful and strong name of Jesus. Amen. You would turn to your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 3. For some of you, will, you will say hallelujah because we are actually arriving at verse 13. We've been a while in uh, chapter 3, verses 1 through 13. Beginning in verse 8. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized or accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Amen. Paul had spent the entirety of the first half of chapter 3, and I would even argue a great portion of the whole book of Ephesians from chapter 1 all the way to chapter 3 thus far, trying to talk to us about the centrality of, of the church. Now I want us to begin to think about this because the reality is, is in understanding the world we live in and is in coming to a place where we might be able to more fully see our place, we have to in some ways look at how even people in the church view the church. There are some who really, if you were to press them, really believe, and I know this, and in Tucson, there are many of them who really think the church is a defunct institution. And in fact, they have such a, I don't want to say this, a universal view of the church that they literally use that view to say, I don't really need to be a part of any local body because I have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And that's enough. That's all that's required. The reality is, is that that's not biblical. What I've been trying to show you over the past few weeks is how Paul is telling us the church has a central place in God's plan just as surely as the person of Jesus Christ has a central place in God's eternal plan. That in some sense to rip the church away from Christ is to have no real part of Christ because Christ has been given as head of the church. And while we want to affirm 
most assuredly the universality of the church, the Catholicity, if you will, of the church. We never want to lose sight of the fact that we are called to local fellowships. It's kind of like that little adage that the uh, environmentalists love to use, think globally and act locally. There's real truth to that when it comes to the church. You have to be a part of a local body of believers. And Paul will not let us get away from that. Indeed, the New Testament will not let us get away from that. We are at a place where we have to see that the church has a place of primacy in the plan of God. Now, lest we become really foolish, we know that there is much to be said that the church lacks. There is no church, ours or any other, in this city, in this state, in this country, in this world, that is not in need of some measure of reform and renewal at all times. That's the truth. But what we have to be careful of as God's people is that we do not become so cynical and so skeptical that we need to begin to despise the thing that Christ loves most. And that is His church. Paul will take us in a few short chapters telling us that the man and the woman were created in the garden to point us to a greater reality. That is Christ and His church. We must take seriously the doctrines that are laid out for us that the church has a place of primacy among God's plan. We need to see that from all eternity, God had planned for Christ to die. He had planned to pour out His love. The Holy Spirit had planned to be poured out into us, demonstrating God's love, to work in power. And that all of this was for us to see the triune God engaged in bringing to fullness and completion a church. So when we talk about church, we should not talk about it as, oh, well, that church. And maybe it ought to give us pause when we have differences with other churches that we think long and hard about what we have to say about that wing, if you will, of the bride of Christ. We recognize the fact that there's always in history been pure and less pure churches. That's always been true. It will be true till Christ returns. But we should not despise the thing for which Christ died. So as we begin to unpack the rest of this passage, we're going to primarily look at verses 11 through 13 this morning. I want us to see that the church is central to God's eternal plan, and we do well this morning to see how this passage teaches us about the biblical centrality of the church. So the first point I want us to look at is the historical centrality of the church. First of all, Paul has told us in verse 11 that this was according to to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. Remember back in verse 10 when he says, Through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. So what he's basically coming now and saying is, this whole display of God's wisdom, this whole display of the unsearchable riches of Christ, all of these things which Paul has been delighting to tell us, is through this group called the church. So from all eternity, 
Paul's telling us that God planned to have a church. It's not plan B. It's not something that he said, well, the children of Israel didn't do it, so now we're going to create a new institution, the church. No, rather what we're told is by Paul in 1 Corinthians is that the Old Testament Israelites were set as an example to and for the church. That the big crescendo, if you will, of the Bible is Christ comes and establishes a church. Now that's powerful stuff. Because see, that's, that's altering. That begins to make you have to read your Bible differently. Because you don't see the church as this addendum. You rather see the church as the focal point. It's the place where Christ is seen and known and exalted and lifted up. It's that entity for which Christ died. And it becomes a place in historical centrality. We know that this plan was hidden. Paul has already told us that. And we know that it was not made known to the sons of men in previous generations. He tells us in verse 5. But it now comes to fruition because Christ has come. And we see this when it says, this is according to the eternal purpose that He has realized. It's come into reality in Christ Jesus our Lord. A plan from eternity has now been realized in time and space. So we see that the historical reality, not just of the cross, not just of the resurrection, not just of the ascension, but the establishment of a church, of a people called out and separated. That was in God's plan and is part of the outworking of His work in history. We need to see here that in this plan is in view in its conception in eternity past, but the accomplishment has now been done in time and space. While the world teaches us history, and we've all had history classes, and some of us have enjoyed it more than others. I at one time was a history major. I, I, I like history a lot. I tend to read a lot of historical type books. But for many of you in this room, history has not always been that great. Well, maybe for those of you that don't like history that much, I might can recapture the glory of history for you. If you begin to look at history as really His story, His unfolding, His working out, His sovereign plan, all of a sudden you quit being so consumed with the details of kings and queens and philosophies. and all. You see that all of those things are being used towards the greater reality of the church rather than the church being this obscure little reality that's a blip in the historical development of human beings which often in your history classes, you can't ignore the church, you can't ignore Christianity as a movement, but it's certainly not given place of primacy. But what Scripture says is, Augustus is sort of significant. I mean, Jesus was born during his reign. He has a place in history. You know, Babylon had its place. Egypt had its place. It doesn't deny the historical realities of those things, but it says those things all serve the greater purpose of God's salvation coming to reality in the person and work of Christ and the development and advancement of the church. Do you see how that alters how we read history? History is about God saving human beings and bringing them into His people, the church. Now this has to start to give you a level of significance, men and women. Do you understand that on the scene of life right now in 21st century America 
you have a place of prominence and importance in the outworking of history. Do you understand that? That far exceeds the nations of this world rising and falling. Because kingdoms rise and kingdoms fall, but God and His people go on. And see, it's not to say that we shouldn't love our country and we shouldn't do all that we can to help our country. It's just that we shouldn't get wrapped up in the historical things that are going on around us so much that we lose sight of the real transcendent reality that is taking place as we are members of the people of God. And that we know the Christ who rules over all things and is bringing all things into submission to, his, to God His Father. And understand this, He's doing it through us. So as you seek to live faithfully as a group, encouraging one another, enabling one another to pursue godliness in greater measure, as you witness to people around you, both through your life and through your verbal proclamation, through your inclusion of them into your life and to drawing them to see the realities of Christ and His people, that you are doing things of cosmic proportion. Because we have historical place. We have central place in the history of God and His eternal plan. Again, that's huge. And for some of you, you go, that's almost too big to take in. That's great. But don't let the bigness of it mean you just cast it off as something, well, that's a nice idea that the preacher said this morning. Rather, grapple with it. Come to terms with it. Ask God to give you a better vision of what He's doing in this world so that you don't lose sight of your historical importance. You matter in ways I think most of you don't even begin to comprehend. And if you can begin to grab hold of that, it makes you useful in ways maybe you've never anticipated and thought about. The second point I want us to look at is gospel centrality of the church. All of this, Paul tells us, has been realized. All of God's plan has been realized in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And when he uses the term Lord, he's not saying something that happened back there or something I thought about. He's rather saying, no, the reality has come. Jesus is not hopefully Lord. He has been declared Lord in heaven and on earth. And the realities of that are going on all around you. Let me tell you how small it is, and I want you to understand this. When you do the right thing for the right reason, do you understand that that is a reality of the kingdom of God? That is an impossibility for fallen human beings. They cannot do the right thing for the right reason, ever. Even when they do what's supposedly the right thing, they feed the poor. They don't do it for the right reasons. And even if somehow they have a right reasoning thought in their mind, they do the wrong thing. That's unjust. So then they act as vigilantes. Were they right in their thinking that certain acts were unjust? Yes, but their whole approach to trying to bring justice fails. What you need to understand is when we as human beings actually do, when we as a church do things right, 
and have a right understanding of what we're doing, the reality of the gospel is seen there. Because it's impossible without the power of God, which is seen in the gospel, for that to take place. It's impossible. See, sometimes I don't think we really believe that, which is why we become very critical of one another, because we're always looking at where we're not measuring up instead of being astounded at the places that people do. I'm not saying we shouldn't help to be corrective and encouraging, but I'm saying, do you ever just stand back and say, do you realize that that human being just did the right thing for the right reason? And stand back in wonder and amazement, because that goes against the entire reality of sin and its permeation in this world. It confronts the fact that total depravity has not won. The gospel is triumphing in the people of God, and we display it. And that's not just some pie in the sky nice idea. It's the reality of what we were gathered together for so that we would be seen. We would be a testimony to the gospel of God. Paul draws attention to the gospel by saying that the manner in which the church experienced her relationship to God rests upon the Son, our Savior. Christ's work, look at what he says here. He says, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith. It was realized in Christ. Christ's work in faithful obedience has not only been the ground of the church's formation, which he talked about earlier, but now he brings us to a place and says, but it is the assurance that the church and all her members have continued access to the throne of grace because of union with Christ. It can never be taken away. Hebrews 4.14-16 puts it this way, Since then we have great have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need." Now, one of the things I love about that passage in Hebrews is what does it assume? We as a church and as individual people, as followers of Christ, have times of need. And what do we have confidence of? Never do we come as a church or as individuals to a place where our confidence should ever waver. Does it? Sure it does, but should it? No. And should we strive to encourage one another not to let our confidence waver? Yes. Why? Because the realities of what Christ has done are true. And when we doubt that, we cease to be the powerful witness we're called to be. We're not supposed to be an arrogant people, but we are supposed to be a confident people. God is triumphing in our midst. It's true. I won't do it this morning, but I'm telling you, men and women, that I know many of you personally, and it is amazing to me as I sit and watch some of the things that you have endured in your life. And the fact that you sit here this morning and say, I love Jesus, is amazing. Some of you have endured tremendous abuse at the hands of parents. Some of you have lived with the exposure of yourselves by parents who did not protect you. Some of you have lived through wrecks recently and other things like that. And the fact that you are still here and say, 
Those things have not caused me to waver ultimately from the true faith says that the gospel is doing what God says it would do. The reality that Christ has come, He has accomplished everything, He has obeyed perfectly. We have confidence that we and He cannot fail. We cannot fail. And we often don't live like that though. We live as people of sight rather than people of faith. And so we're called to faith. Paul says, put your faith in Christ. Believe the reality of what He has accomplished. Don't doubt you've been given access into the heavenly places. If we can see the unsearchable riches of Christ revealed as the multicolored wisdom of God, that Christ did not die to save various individuals, but rather to create a single humanity, namely the church, to not only reconcile himself, to not only reconcile us to himself, but to reconcile to enable us to be reconciled to one another, to not only redeem us from the bondage of sin and death, but to unite us to Himself as adopted children. See, you begin to understand the realities. Christ didn't just do this so that a few individuals would experience the realities of salvation. He did it so that this whole group would come together and as a collective would be experiencing it as a group. And men and women, I'm just going to tell you, there are people who constantly ebb and flow in and out of the midst of every church. In a big church, you don't feel it as much. In a small church, you feel it very realistically. Sometimes people ebb and flow for reasons that are valid. Sometimes people ebb and flow for reasons that aren't. There are some of you who are, I guarantee you this morning, are saying, is it really worth it to continue to show up, not just at this church, but at any church? Is it really worth it? You see, what I'm saying is until you come to a place where you really believe that the church is the place, not a particular church, the church, that any church is a place where God's people are drawn together to see the power of the gospel worked out, you will just continue to run and you will never find peace. You won't find peace on a mountaintop. It may be easier, but you won't find peace. It is the reality that where the gospel comes, it brings peace. And where that peace is found is among God's people, even when it's hard to deal with one another. Even through the difficulties that we're called into. Paul really wants us to come to a place where we say this, it is the height of folly not to trust God. See, isn't that exactly what Psalm 14 draws us to? The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. That's not an idea that basically you say, well, a fool is the person who walks around saying, there is no God, there is no God. That's not what it's saying. It's saying the fool, the way of the fool is to live a life which says the reality of God is not true. And how shameful is it that the church of Jesus Christ sometimes walks around with heads hanging, not believing that the gospel is true and real. Not believing that God is able to do exceedingly and abundantly beyond all that we hope or imagine, which is where Paul's about to take us in his prayer. See, he wants you to get caught up and to see you need to place your faith squarely in a God because to do anything other than to trust God completely and utterly and to live with great abandon for His glory is the height of foolishness. 
no matter what your circumstances around you may be declaring to you, the reality is, is that the church is the place where gospel centrality is seen. The church is the central place where declaration, both as an institution and as individual members, the gospel is proclaimed in word and deed. That brings us then to our final point, which is the sanctifying centrality of the church. Paul now turns to exhort the people, and look what he says. In whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in Him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. This language that Paul says, don't lose heart, is actually in other writings in the Greek world used of this. It's a woman who has been in labor. And some of you have recently experienced this, so you can appreciate the fullest. You've pushed and pushed and pushed. And the doctors come in and say, it's, it's ours probably away. And that's really what this is getting at. Don't lose heart to keep on pushing forward. Life is on the way in its fullness. See, there's a beautifulness about that because all of us know that when we see that ultrasound, we know that life's there. We know it's real. We know it's there. But what Paul is saying is sometimes in the midst of the struggle, sometimes in the midst of the pain, sometimes in the midst of it, we can lose determination and heart. Now, I've seen something of this. Many of you don't know this, but um, when Olivia was being delivered, Jane had been in labor all day. And she had pushed continuously for four and a half hours. And the doctors basically came in and said, the baby is not coming, and so we're going to have to do something else. So we had to be rushed into the emergency room area section for emergency surgery, and Jane had to have Olivia delivered by C-section. Now here's the reality, men and women. For starters, had it not been for that great miraculous surgical item, I'd have lost both my wife and my first child. But the main thing that I remember, we had a believing doctor. He kept coming in and telling Jane, Jane, don't lose heart. We're going to get this baby. It's going to be okay. I know it looks bleak right now, and I know you're scared to death, but it's going to be okay. Don't give up. And see, what I want you to see, men and women, is in the middle of your hurt and your pain and your struggle, and you think, will it ever end? God has made a way. It may not be the way you think, but He has made a way. Delivery will come. Life will be realized. And see, there is a sanctifying reality of that, that as we sit around one another and watch this taking place, that it's sanctifying to our souls. It reminds us. See, when we hear that the steels were miraculously, I mean, all these events just worked in such a way that they didn't flip over like this other truck and all of them still sit here among us. We stand back and we ought to be just in amazement and say, God, you're amazing. When we pray that people in this midst would be healed or we pray that God would be gracious and take them home to glory, and He does, they don't suffer long. Don't you see that's the reality of God? Do we think it's so small that Ethan went to the hospital last week and he's back with us? Do you realize that God could have allowed normal things to take their place and he wouldn't be here? Do we think so little 
of God's work in our midst. And see, this is why when you separate yourself from the church, you miss out on the sanctifying work because it's constantly reminding you and rubbing up against you and saying, God is here and His power is great and it is at work and it's going to accomplish all its purposes. Don't lose heart. Even when it appears that the father of the church, if you will, of these people in Ephesus and around that area, Paul, is in chains suffering. The other thing I want us to notice here is that Paul has had this attitude all along about saying that so through the church back in verse 10, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. His idea there is not only have the rulers and authorities seen the reality of the church come into place, but they've not been able to do anything to stop it. Not only have they not been able to do anything to stop it, they can't keep you from having access to the throne of grace. Which is why we should not despise gathering together and praying together. Paul has demonstrated this by using these words, which mean, I want you to look at these words back in verse 12, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith. Those words literally in Greek mean this. Full liberty of speech, complete assurance, free access, which results in utter confidence. Think about this. What God is saying is, is that we as the people of God have freedom to say what's on our hearts, whatever it is. Speak freely. Speak openly. Do you grab hold of that? The sovereign king of the universe says you can say what's on your heart. I have friends of mine that always say, you know, people who go back and correct their misspelled words and emails are being, are being trifling because they just think, you know, email is one of those places you just got to go, and there it is. And you kind of deal with what you get. It's just a very flat medium. And so you just type, and I mean, I'm always looking at them, and I always feel convicted because I am one of those people that goes back and <laughs> corrects my words because that's a, I was taught penmanship as a kid, so I can't get out of that. It's just it's ingrained in me. But the reality is, what I'm saying to you is, do you understand that God is saying to us, you can be madder than a hornet's nest and speak freely. Do you understand the profoundness of that? Speak freely. And I want you to understand where that freedom ultimately rests. It rests in God Himself. Because God is completely free. What are you going to say to Him that's going to affect Him one way or the other? Absolutely nothing. It doesn't change His holiness. It doesn't change His glory. It doesn't change any of that. Speak with freedom. The reality is, and this is where some of you are like, going, well, what are you saying? You just say whatever's on your mind? Yes, I'm, you've got to see that so that when I bring to the other part of this point, you'll see the beauty of it. He's telling us, come before the throne of grace freely with abandon. God, I'm so frustrated. I'm hurting like crazy. What's going on in this crazy mixed up world? Where are you? Don't you hear the psalmist saying things like that? God, where are you? Why have you forsaken me? See, God is big enough to handle you. Freedom of access. But here's the thing. That freedom does not remove reverence, but rather intensifies it. Why? Because see, when you come to God with all that freedom and you really start to realize the consuming fire of heaven 
lets me speak freely and open with Him, what are you drawn to? You're drawn to a place of worship. You're drawn to a place of praise. You're drawn to a place of wonder that this God would actually let me come and speak my mind to Him. He would even care what's on my mind. And He hears me. And He cares. And He is moved by me. Hebrews 10, 19-25 says this, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that He opened for us through the curtain, that is, through His flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for He who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Do you see how the writer of Hebrews encapsulates what Paul is saying in these few short verses? You have a great God who you have great confidence. You go boldly before the throne of grace. You speak freely and He enraptures you and draws you into a family, a people, so that you won't lose heart, so that they will encourage you to press on to love and good deeds, especially since we know the day is drawing near, especially because of that. Paul now draws them in the last part of this verse to consider his suffering for them in a different light. Paul's very suffering is proof positive that glorification is real. For Paul, and indeed the Scripture, suffering is not a prelude to glory. It is the method and the means to glory. If you do not suffer, you have no part of Christ. You've got to reorient yourself. I'm suffering. Hope is on the way. That's the point. It's through suffering that you actually head into glory. Paul wants us to see that the suffering of the church and her members is not a sign of the gospel's retreat or proof that God's plan has failed, but rather is a sure sign that our glorification is sure and near. See what he says? So I ask you, don't lose heart over the fact that I'm suffering for you. This is your glory. He doesn't mean that this is your glory. He means this is the surety of your glorification. That just as surely as God has justified you, just as surely as He is sanctifying you, He will and is glorifying you. It is a done deal. And the fact that you see yourselves and other people suffering is proof positive. For the Christian, it doesn't bring you to a place of despair. What Paul's saying is when you see yourself and other people suffering, when you recognize suffering, say, this for me is a reality that the glory of God is going to accomplish its purposes. So in conclusion, Paul shows us in this section that our connection to the church is not a nice idea. It's not a, well, that'd be a sweet thing to do but is rather central to God working out His eternal plan. To reject the church is to, in a real sense, reject God and His Son Jesus. And that's a hard word, but that's the truth. You have to love the church and be a part of it if you want to say, I'm a part of Christ. Christ does not draw you to Himself without drawing you to His people. Our connection with one another as a church demonstrates the reality of the gospel to each other and to others. Thus, being a part of the church is central to the gospel. If you say, I'm about the gospel, but you are not a part of a church, locally and specifically, you actually undermine the gospel. 
Lone Ranger Christianity is no Christianity at all. Because you're not among the people. We are encouraged and built up and sent forth as the people of God to proclaim His excellencies. We have access to God, which is always a sanctifying reality. It's just like marriage, men and women. You know what? You love that person that you lay down to next to day after day, week after week, but boy, do they really press you, don't they? Yes, amen. They do. We press one another. We don't allow one another just to continue to go on our merry way. Being in relationship won't allow that. There has to be a changing and a molding and a conforming in order for that to move forward. God says that molding and conforming is to be to His will and His ways. God's presence in us and among us draws us to be overwhelmed with the glorious consuming fire of heaven gives me free access to speak and know Him. This gives us not only confidence, but real assurance that whatever we are called to endure in this life, be it abuse, torture, or even death, there is absolutely nothing that does not work towards our being brought safely to glory. Nothing. It's like that little children's song that says, nothing, nothing, absolutely nothing, nothing is impossible for thee. Do you see, I hope you do, the centrality of your place in God's eternal plan as the church? You're important. You matter. You're part of the plan. You're part of its being achieved. And as individuals among us and in the worldwide church suffer, we see the reality that hope is not lost, but that glory is soon to be realized. May God make it so in the midst of His people. Amen.